Happy New Year, folks, and welcome to the Hugh Carthy episode of Sigma Sports Presents Matt Stevens Unplugged. From his residence in Andorra, the EF Education Nippo rider took a break from his freezing cold training rides to spend over an hour in the warm embrace of this podcast. Grab a cuppa, find a comfy chair, and settle in for our exclusive in-depth chat covering everything from staying optimistic on a positive career path to the wet and wild spires of Preston. Let's get on with the pod. And I do hope you like biscuits and snooker. Hello, and welcome. Are you ready? Because it's that time again. Matt Stevens unplugged by Sports. Hugh Carthy has been on an upward career trajectory since he was a junior, but his recent success in winning stage 12 of the Vuelta, en route to coming third on the GC, has really blasted him into the cycling stratosphere, which might be why he sounded like he was dialing in from outer space. Check it out. Well, Hugh, first and uh, well, first and foremost, mate, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the podcast, mate. Now, one thing that I ask everybody to do on the pod before we crack on is just describe, well, tell us where in the world you are. And if you wouldn't mind, could you describe in as much detail as you can where you are as well, where, where you're sitting, what you can see? Um, I am in Andorra at the moment, uh, in Andorra La Vella. And I am sat in a cream beige leather stressless recliner. Ooh. Um, yeah, a bit retro. Um, Looking at some bookshelves, some shelves, and some ornaments, trophies, uh, some, uh, I can't remember the brand of pottery, I've got it at me. Um, it's one of these sort of famous old-fashioned British brands of pottery. Oh, right, it's uh, not, not Lardro, is it? That's Spanish, though. It's not- no, I'm, I can, I'm going to take my laptop and have a look quickly. Mm. Cool. It'll bother me if I don't tell you what it is. No, no, it's, it's uh, like, it, all, it, all it does, it adds a real rich kind of texture Hornsy. to the podcast. Oh, oh no, Hornsy. I've heard of it. Hornsy, yeah. I've, I've it's a set it. with a big, big coffee pot um, and a few cups and saucers. Lovely, um, got a TV sort of in front of me. Um, yeah, a few bits of Preston memorabilia. <laughs> Preston uh, memorabilia. Um, I just warn you now, um, Hugh. Obviously, we all know you're from Preston. Um, there will be. I will drop at some point during this chat a quiz on Preston. I've got four questions for you. So not oh, to worry you too much, mate. I've got four quite well, quite high-end questions about Preston, um, which I'm going to kind of quiz you on a little bit later. Just oh, I've, to... got get, I've got to get mugged off here, I think. <laughs> you're not, you're, mate, this, I, I'm not going to ask you to – yeah, don't fire up your computer and cheat, but they're, they're very easily accessible by the members of the general public. No, so no, no, I'll do it properly. So don't and, worry. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm drinking a, a bottle of Highland Spring mineral water. Oh, very nice, mate. Well, I've, oh, very uh, nice. I tell yeah. you what, I, the amount of detail and the amount of care and attention you've gone to to describe your whereabouts is with this is the twenty first podcast. I think, along with Matt White, who was very good, you you're up there in the top two, mate. So well done. Mm. Another thing that's more interesting to you next to me is a uh, I don't know what year it is, sort of late seventies, early eighties. Dave Lloyd frame five three one SL. Oh, very uh, nice, mate. Full. Full Campag Super Record, uh, GP40 rims, Super Record hubs, everything original. Wow! So what's what's that doing doing in your apartment? Uh, I don't know. I got my. I think my bag got the frame from a jumble a few years ago. Years <laughs> ago, probably seven or eight years ago. 
Right. And it was completely rusted to bits. Um, well, not rusted to bits. The paintwork was all sure. I think you got it for about ten or something. I don't know how much you got it for. Pretty cheap. Um, <laughs> they might have got a whole bike and then took the took the bits off it that he needed. Um, so I said, "Oh, it's a pretty good frame. Like, it's pretty light, and it was it made a nice noise when you tapped it." Um, so, so I took it to a Paul Hewitt's, and they uh, they sent it to somewhere to paint. They did a few repairs on it. They did a couple yeah. of bits repairing, and they put some cable bosses on the top tube. Which it, I think originally it had clips on the top tube. Um, oh, yeah. And what else did I? Have? Oh, I had the front mech front mech hanger brazed on. Wow. And, apart, so and after that, yeah, I got to send, they sent it off to a place in Midlands, I think, and uh, they got it painted up in a nice sort of electric blue, uh, metallic electric fluorescent blue. Very uh, nice, man. And they got the original logos and decals for it. Then I set about piecing together this super record group set, which took quite a while. Uh, it, yeah. Is it is it the super record with the – I mean, I raced on super record, mate, in the – in the late eighties and it's beautiful. Is it the, the one with the black inset on the rear mech? Uh, it is. It's the, the second, I think second generation one. Yeah. The black, with the black cage on the front mech as well. That's it. It's really, I mean, I know we sound like a right couple of sort of, uh, equipment pros, but it's beautiful stuff that isn't it? It's so lovely. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing, the only deviation from, uh, the super record is the shifters, the down tube shifters, the synchros. Ah, That's synchros. It. Okay. Yeah. I, so I, I used... believe you were better back in the day, but, I do remember Syncross levers. I, I used to use Simplex um, uh, uh, shifters. Similar, yeah. yeah, and they were basically, we, we called them retro, shi- um, retro shifters for some reason, but they were, I mean, they were miles better than what Campag did, what Mavic did, and even mm. what Shimano did. Oh, they were brilliant. Um, uh, yeah, absolutely amazing. Beautiful things to look at, mate. But that's, uh, so is that your town bike, or is it more like an ornamental bike you just look at? Oh, I just leave it in my head. I've, I've ridden it a few times. I've kitted up and ridden it properly. I rode it when I lived in Pamplona. I used to ride it, and after the season or something, or if in the middle of summer on a nice day for an easy ride, I might ride it to the cafe for an hour or so. And but it rolls well. I it roll apart when you get out of saddle, you can feel the difference. Uh, but once you get up to speed, it's. I mean, I'm I'm doing nowadays bikes a massive disservice here on them. Well, they. It, <laughs> 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 saying uh, a 40 odd year old bike is better than or as good as now but no it, when you get it up to speed when you've got a nice set of tubers on uh some shallow wheels it, it soaks up the it soaks up the road nicely the, there is yeah it, there, there is something nice about an old bike i mean i i don't have my dad has one of my old bikes but it's not a steel one it's a an al- aluminium a giant from 1998 a tcr uh, um and i don't I, I, that's one thing i do want to do in all seriousness is is find an old frame a steel frame like 753 531 mm-hmm. and get it built up with some old stuff mm-hmm. and i think that'll be a project that i'm going to do maybe in the next couple of years just haven't had the time but there's something lovely about an old bike there mate in there it's the noise for me it's the noise above all the feeling on your three hands and you and your ass and stuff all of those things are okay yeah it's nice but it's the noise nowadays bikes are quite noisy aren't they the sort yeah, of very big hollow tubes big hollow frames with sometimes of cables and brake cables and gear cables rattling around in them uh, and carbon wheels they make a lot of noise as well and like the, the narrow chains they all get clicky and sort of sort of scratchy sound pretty quick but this thing just you can creep along and it's silent i i, I know what you mean you might you might occasionally get a little bit of a creak but it's just there's a, a, a wonderful simplicity and it was funny a minute, a few moments ago when you were starting to describe the bike. When you flick, when you 
you know, like you flick a tire, see how hard it is. When you flick a steel frame, it makes a wonderful. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a tuning fork almost, isn't it? Yeah, it's kind of like a thuddy sound, isn't it? It doesn't really. I know what you mean. It's sort of yeah, it's unique, isn't it? Yeah, it's bloody lovely, mate. It's bloody. I said, what, what a lovely way. We're seven minutes into the pod. We haven't even chatted about anything apart from your apartment and your lovely bike. That's the best sort of pod, mate. but absolutely lovely. Um, what you'll have to do at the end of the pod is take a photo of you and your headphones on with that bike, and then we'll use that as the promo on social, mate. Right. Okay. Sounds good. Right. That. Well, down. maybe not the head. Might have to take the headphones off or put them around my neck or something. I look like um, <laughs> like Craig David off Post Selector with these things. On. You would do oh. two, man. <laughs> you know, I might have to find a white hat to put on as well. Go, go for it. We'll, we'll give you as much time as you need to look like Craig David, a Lancastrian Craig David. That's absolutely hilarious. Um, I'll leave that to you, mate, to do the wardrobe fitting for the for the photo shoot. But, uh, mate, um, how are you? Because you know we're in lockdown three here in the UK. You're obviously in Andorra. How are things how have things affected you or have they? Because I see from from the little bits you do sometimes put in social that you're out in the cold weather, but in the in the beautiful mountains, mate. Yeah, it, it, it was freezing yesterday. It was cold, but it was sunny. So you sort of the sun sort of radiates through the through your gloves and stuff. But today was, um, it, yeah, there was no. It was thick cloud. Uh, so it, it was minus seven at ten o'clock, and it was about minus four at two o'clock when I came back. Bloody hell! Um, yeah, but it wasn't too bad. I, I, I had I've, a few years ago, I, well, three or four years ago, I bought this massive pair of uh, ski gloves, um, and I, every jacket I've got, I put on, and a hat, a couple of neck warmers, thick overshoes, and tights. And to be honest, you don't really feel the cold. It's, it's a bit restrictive, but you can still do your training and stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's one of those things. You, you, there's a lot to be said for being at home and relaxed and having all your creature comforts versus being in a hotel in uh, South East Bay. I've, I've done that when the weather's been bad. If it's rain, there's been really bad rain or snow for a week, a couple of weeks, and yeah, I'll go. But when it's just dry and cold, you can uh, you can deal with that pretty well. Yeah, it's just once it's just getting ready and getting out the door. But once you're settled in, ten minutes into the ride, you're fine normally, aren't you, mate? It, uh, yeah, you... right. It takes it takes an effort to bloody get changed. It takes more time <laughs> to get changed and hang the wash. I was just I was looking at the watch then and I was hanging the washing up on my, on the main. I was waiting for the wash to finish and uh, that takes about ten minutes to do that and then changing and showering and but anyway, it's okay. It's a proper process, mate, isn't it? So, what sort of um, are you under any sort of restrictions in Andorra? Until in can you go across the border and stuff? Or are you pretty free to to in relation to where you ride right now? Um, they relaxed a little bit over Christmas period. Um, the rules, I think. I think tourists can't come in to Andorra. I yeah. think uh, they maintain that right through Christmas anyway. Um, but Andorans can, Andorran residents or citizens can, I think they can go in and out of Andorra if they've got like a medical reason or some kind of, or some kind of appointment or they're going somewhere specific, they've got a letter to say they're going um, and they are checking. But, but during that, well, I've only been back here a week or so. I was in, I was in the UK for most of December, um, yeah. so I'm not, I'm not too sure what was going on in that period before it got relaxed. But I only saw it when it was relaxed. And yesterday, the festive period ended, so they tightened things up today. But uh, I think they're allowing sports people, like athletes, or just general sports people, people who are doing sports cycling and stuff, they can ride in and out of Andorra without. Um, without any real restrictions as long as you don't I think if you cross over into the neighbouring sort of 
um, sort of county area, then I think they have police on there, but that's stopping those people from that area coming to this area and all that kind of thing. So yeah, you can get training done. You can get you got a good thirty, forty mile radius from when you leave the border, so it's uh, it's 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 okay. But as it stands, I don't really know what the I've not really been following the the rules and stuff. I text someone the for the federation last night, uh, and they they said, oh, you're okay to leave. Just take your ID and stuff in case they stop you and check who you are and stuff. And, uh, so far, that's how it is. Maybe it'll change. Fair enough, mate. Well, I'm glad you, you're getting out and about, mate. And I, like I say, keep posting the photos. Actually, I've got a quick, a quick question for you. I know you're not a big social media type person, but do you? But but occasionally you don't, and you don't post a lot on your main feed on Insta. Um, but you do. I've, I've noticed recently you're getting on the stories a bit, which is really nice. But do you know off the top of your head how many posts on your main feed you've ever posted on Instagram, mate? Uh, I think I was looking the other day. Actually, I think it's like 20, 20 something, twenty five, twenty six. I don't know. Twenty six, mate. Well done. Twenty six. Yeah. Good lad. You want to? You want to? I knew it was about that. <laughs> no, I knew it was about that because uh, there was an article <laughs> someone did of me at the end of the season, and they put twenty five or twenty six. Since then, I've not. Uh, I've not updated. It, I don't think. No. I don't know. I like to put nice photos on there, like the the team professional photos and stuff, and um, and then the story for sort of like like a, a quick snapshot. Just like, nothing too personal. The only with the stories, it's on and off in twenty four hours. I mean, unless you put yeah. something ridiculous and everyone screenshots it, then people forget <laughs> about it. Only. No, but I don't yeah. want to put a picture of me in next to a lake or a picture of my bike against the wall every day on the main one and it's there forever then. And, uh, yeah, I think on the story, it's nice, a quick, quick glance and that's it. That's nice, mate. I think, uh, again, we're all, we're all kind of use social media for different reasons and feel comfortable in a certain way. I, I like it. I mean, you, you kind of, you just own it, mate. And I, I do like it, but it is nice because people are interested, you know, we've, we've all got a right to our own kind of privacy and stuff. And, um, but I think, people are interested in what you do but just giving them little glimpses is just nice mate isn't it and it's not there forever it's just a little insight into what you're doing so uh, without giving well, too much giving too much it's away not, it's not even really privacy i've just not not got, not got much going on to show to be honest. <laughs> it's, it's not that i'm being private and sort of reclusive i've i've i think like a lot of people uh there's not got I, i'm not going out to uh, I, I see some of your stuff or you go to the theater a lot or you go to the concerts and things like that Mm. Uh, I mean, I'm nothing like going on, so I've nothing really interesting for people to know. I'm sat here in my apartment on these on these chairs, or I'm out riding a bike. You know what I mean? I'm not really. Uh, <laughs> uh, you people get bored of seeing my, the end of my feet on a on a, on a picture. You'll be surprised what people are interested in, especially nowadays, mate. I tell you that. I got away with posting videos of me eating soup for about eight weeks uh, earlier in the year. Anyway, moving on, moving on. Um, Hugh, can you d- remember or tell us your earliest memory mate of um of of riding a bike and how you got into it i know, I know your i know your dad's a big influence sean who i didn't realize was a police officer uh, very much like me of course with our packed yeah. in now but um what's your earliest memory of, of riding then and, and kind of uh, getting a sense that this might be something you want to do um i don't know really so many sort of memories going back um one of my earliest memories i don't know how old i would have been probably Four or five or something. Like that. Mm. Where my my dad got a tandem. Oh yeah. Um, and I, I, I can't remember what the situation was. I don't know how old I really was to be honest. But we went out on. Uh, my sister was on the bike. She never really liked riding. We used to take her out on school holidays, and I used to ride my on my own bike. And my dad took her out on a tandem. Um, 
Have you ever ridden? Have you ever raced on the Oakham Club circuit? Yes, I have. Yeah. So you got the you got the sort of main climb on the circuit that like steep steep straight road. Yeah. And the descent of that is in the trees, like a long sort of straight straight down in the trees. Um, yeah. I don't know what we well we were on there. Obviously, that was quite away from home. We ten miles from home at that point. I wasn't probably five. I'd probably five or something six. Um, and it was raining, and my dad had the panniers on the on the on the tandem. And yeah. we stopped on the descent of that, or maybe we climbed that way. I can't remember. We stopped in a gateway up there in the shelter in the trees. And it's all very sort of like grouse, grouse and pheasant uh, breeding areas around there. So there's a lot of dense rhododendron. Oh, yeah. So this forest was full of rhododendron and trees, tall, very tall trees. And we stopped, pulled the tandem, and went against the. I was on my own bike, and we got these. I don't know what they were. I think they were, I think they were turkey, turkey and mayonnaise sandwiches. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's, Wrapped in cling flag, bizarre the things you remember. Um, yeah, that's a lot of detail, that was, mate. Yeah, that was yeah, that was one of my earliest memories on the, on the bike. Um, I like my dad on the exactly when that was. He got to, he's one of those anoraks that you ask him something, I know the exact date that it was, like fifth of May, nineteen ninety eight or something. Uh, I don't know when it was, maybe maybe two thousand, nineteen ninety nine, something like that. Uh, we're very very young. Um, yeah. yeah, that was one of my earliest memories. Since then, it's, I, yeah. I mean, I mean, that's, it's lovely that you can remember a little kind of snapshot like that. I mean, um, going back so far, because those memories are kind of really, really important and it's easy. And you don't often think of them. Sometimes it takes somebody else to kind of remind you to kind of, you, you rifle back through your mental filing cabinet and you find these lovely little moments, mate. And, um, and as you get older, you look back and they become even more important, you know, um, without kind of uh, getting too soppy about it, mate. That's a, it's lovely that you can remember all, all that kind of detail. Um, so at what point then did you start getting a bit competitive because as you no doubt know and seen there's some wonderful pictures knocking about the internet mate of you as a little lad uh, doing these hill climbs and stuff on bikes that are obviously you know you, you're growing into and they, they're, mm. they're, they're absolutely wonderful but at what point I mean what club did you first join or did you join a club or what, what was the score in your early racing years? No I wasn't really in a club um, no I was never really in a club to be honest I remember dad used to ride um, and when I started racing a bit um, when I was being about seven or something, I used to go down to the the sports arena in Preston, like a racing track. Yeah. Uh, every Thursday night, they put put events on there from like schoolboys up to up to um, up to adults, elites, and stuff, um, and schoolgirls, obviously nowadays. Uh, schoolboys. Um, so yeah, that was that was that was sort of my introduction to racing uh, on the Thursday nights. And back then, it was difficult. It's not like now where you can get um, cycling kit, children's cycling kit, the click of click of a finger. You know what I mean, back then yeah. it was it was difficult. I'm, I mean, I'm not I'm not saying it was 30, 40 years ago, but it wasn't easy to find decent quality kit that fitted children. Yeah. Um, but at the time, I think my dad was my dad my, my dad goes back a long way with him with Tim Lawson from Scientist Sport. Yeah, um, and he he had some I don't know what they were maybe samples or something like that. Um, made up in children's sizes, their own sort of team club kit. Um, so yeah, he gave my dad a bit of kit and uh, sort of let me race under their name, so to speak. Uh, he put it on my license, let me put it on my license and things like that. Cool. Um, so yeah, I was that was that was basically who I sort of what I sort of yeah that was my team, so to speak, inverted commas. Until I was probably about I don't know fifteen or sixteen something like that. Yeah. Um, until I was a junior, really. 
and then because uh, that was uh, science in sport, wasn't it? SIS, wasn't it? Um, yeah. In that black kit, because they did have a, a race team back then. I think I was actually still, I was still racing. This is like 2005, 2006 kind of time. Are we talking now, roughly? Yeah, they made it. I think they had a they made it one for one or two seasons. They had a I think it was SIS Trek. It was called. It was like a that's it. They sort of stepped up a bit. Uh, yeah, and they, they had did. a few Ian Wilkinson, Ian Bibby, people like that. Yeah, well, I used to race at all the the uh, Northwest kind of racing league races around there with those boys. They're really, really good training races. Um, but um, yeah, it was it was a good team. But yeah, the, the, I just remember remembering all the images on on the web of primarily you in in that kit, and then mm-hmm. and then obviously you went on to start winning races. And we have there's one little parallel that we, we have actually. I mean, you've won a lot bigger races than I have, mate. But there's one race that we do share a victory in, and that was the the Junior Tour of Wales. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. No, oh, no, 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 no. No, I, I think I knew that one. There's a few There's a few people that have, well, there's a lot of people that have won it. There's a few people that have said, oh, I won that as well. Um, yeah, it was at the time, yeah, it was a, it was a massive race for Junior in, in the UK. It was, uh, yeah. it was a big race. It was uh, three or four days and, um, yeah, it was, uh, at the time, it was it was as big as winning a stage of the world. You know what I mean? It was uh, it, it was a second stone of equal measure. So uh, yeah, it had its place in my career. I've not, not forgot the trophy. The trophy is done in the, in the dining room in my parents' house. Brilliant. Looking at me the other week with a few trophies. Uh, good, yeah, good stuff, mate. No, I've actually found my um, winners the winners yellow jersey. Um, and when I, I won it in '87 and '88, mate, when you were but a twinkle in your mum and dad's eye, Jesus. But yeah, it's a, it's a yeah, it's a bit yeah. A dread, a dread, maybe. I don't know. At that point, the only one year married. <laughs> oh Christ! Yeah, sorry, mate. Yeah, um, but okay. So, at what point then? So you, you won that. I mean, that, that was a big race, as, as we've discussed, to win as a, to win as a junior. But at what point in in your mind did you think? Yeah, I kind of fancy this, you know. Did you? I mean, I remember at sixteen wanting to be a professional. I thought I really, I'm, I'm an all right bike rider. You know, I love watching the pro races. I'm going to give this a go, and I and I and I, and I, and I tried it, and I went abroad and stuff. So, at what point do you remember feeling conscious that you had an, an, an intention to try and pursue a pro a pro path? Um, I think it was after sort of after that year, sort of 2012 going into 2013. Mm. But then I. Uh, John Herity gave me a place on his team. Uh, yeah. Rafa Condor, JLT at the time. Um, so that was the first time I was sort of able to uh, do it full-time, full-time, um, where you're going out every morning training just for that. There's nothing else to do. Yeah, uh, I, wasn't really get, I wasn't really getting paid. I was at an age where uh, the teams couldn't pay you at that age. So anyway, so... Uh, you were just 19, weren't you? Yeah. No, I was eighteen. I just turned eighteen. Did you? Ah, right. Okay, sorry. Right, okay. Um, so yeah, I was I was straight out of juniors to to John's team, um, and yeah, that was the first sort of time I thought, oh, this is this is good. But even by then, you, it's it's a it's a long way from where I am now. And um, but by then, yeah, it was it was it was an important team at the time. Um, it was important as a young rider as well. It's even more important. Been on there, uh, yeah. The first year it wasn't not because I was eighteen. I didn't really know too much about racing at, at elite level and stuff. Um, but over the year, I sort of got my head around it a bit and had a few good results in a couple of the premier calendars. And uh, I just sort of like the consistency. But then the year after, I uh, managed to get a few good results away from home and 
uh, abroad. And after that, that was when I got my first proper pro contract, a real pro contract. Um, and yeah, that was when I knew sort of thing. Oh, but even then, I, I remember those times in my first year or as a professional thinking, oh, this isn't going to last that long. You'd have ups and downs, you know what I mean? Some weeks you'd feel yeah. great and then like a few weeks later, you'd, you'd sort of be rock bottom and you think, oh, this is, a, this a, I'm going to get you alive. It's not, this isn't for me, you know what I mean? But deep down, I knew it was for me, but you, there are so many things that happen and go on and then you think, oh, it's, I'm probably not, I'm not, not going to make it, you know what I mean? Not going to do any, much more than this. And then you come to the world tour and then you, and you sat there in your first year and second year and sort of, um, meandering along a bit oh, man, you're still doing the work you know what I mean you still you still feel like you deserve more or deserve something but you think well, I'm, this is going to be it next contract is going to be over uh, yeah, yeah I think it's always been like that I've always done it and thought oh, yeah, yeah. You know, peaks and troughs and then eventually it sort of comes good yeah and so would you say uh, Hugh that you're I mean you're clearly you're. I'd, I'd say you're a realist you're not a pessimist you're a realist not necessarily an optimist, but you're a realist. Is that fair to say? Would you say that maybe your cup's half empty rather than half full? Because, you know, you, there's a real modest, you know, you speak with real modesty, but real honesty, you know, and, it, and it's really interesting to get an insight into that because clearly, you know, you went from Rafa Condor, you won, you know, you won the Tour of Korea, wasn't it, in 2014? Mm-hmm. Went on to Cajaral, you know, um, lived on your own in Pamplona for a couple of years. And obviously they were, they were going to be tough, but you, you kind of just saw it through, didn't you? Yeah, I did sit through, and no, I, I, it's difficult. I mean, yeah, I think I'm a realist, but I'm definitely, I'm definitely optimistic as well. Sure. Uh, I think you have to be to get anywhere, don't you? If you, if you see yourself as, if you see everything in a negative way, uh, it's toxic. I mean, you just, you don't enjoy anything. But no, I, yeah. I always had a positive uh, sort of career path in my mind at all times. I knew. I get to a certain point where I feel I felt like I knew what I was doing. I knew what it would take to get to, this, to the next level, and I'd do it. Uh, yeah. I'd sort of get my head around it and think, "Okay, well, I can do that. No, it's achievable now." Um, yeah. So no, I was I was always very much optimistic of, of reaching where I am now. I knew I was capable, of it, especially the past uh, past few years. And in 2016, when I sort of had my breakthrough year and got my world to a contract, uh, I knew then that I was capable of racing with the best. It was just it was just a matter of taking time and. Yeah. Um, and being patient but yeah I would definitely you know, I wouldn't say I was half empty type of person at all I mean I know on camera I can come across as quite sort of, I don't know what the word deadpan or I don't know what people use to say deadpan or a bit miserable or whatever but uh, no behind closed doors I'm I'm very much a sort of a workaholic an optimistic workaholic I know there's yeah. always good times ahead I understand now more than ever now you you know how to roll with the bad times and go yeah. ride them out and uh, always yeah. be optimistic that there's a good time around the corner. I mean, that's a lovely way to think, mate, and an important way to think, especially in such a physically demanding sport as professional cycling and, and, and equally, and even more so, I mean, the physical demands, especially in the modern game, I mean, the level is so ridiculously high, the, all the access to kind of training, nutrition, and kind of just knowledge about physiology. But then coupled with that, mate, is the extreme psychological pressure that comes with performing and, and, and having to perform you know on, on a world tour team although I know riders are kind of very much looked after but ultimately it's down to you to deliver and that's um so you've got to be robust I mean look, looking back to again just briefly mate to your days at JLT Condor how much did you kind of learn about yourself there especially through 
under the guidance of John Herity. I mean, John is a guy that I know very well. He managed me back in the 90s as GB coach and with one of the kind of semi-pro teams I rode for. And also, of course, you, um, you're you also with another member of your team as well, Tom Southern as well there. So how, how much did they influence you sort of before you made the step up? Um, yeah, it's hard to, it's sort of hard to quantify it, but... Uh... I think the best way John helped us in a way was leaving us alone a bit, leaving us to our own devices and letting us work it out for ourselves. Some of the managers, they might have been more pushy. And uh, But looking back on how young quite a few of us were at the time, I think he did the best thing in being quite relaxed and laid back. If something didn't go right, we'd have a laugh about it. Yeah. Uh, if it did go well, we'd, he'd reward us for it. You know what I mean? It was, uh, and looking back, I think it was a great approach without even realising it. Yeah, uh, he cared a lot about the team and every rider on the team. There's sort of like a like a son sort of relationship with everyone that went to his team. Sort of came out of it and like, bloody, oh, I miss it. I miss John. I miss the team. And oh, he was a great guy. And you didn't sometimes you didn't see it at the time, but looking back, his approach to running the team and uh, the way he handled himself around riders. And yeah, he could lose his temper like anyone, but uh, I think he taught us a lot about. Um, yeah, just I think laughing off by time, learning from things, obviously learning from things, but just laughing off things occasionally. Yeah, I think taking that's a step what, back. Yeah, I think it's a, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's a good, it's all everything's a, a balance, isn't it? You can't let people too far off the leash when they're young, but by the same token, there's nothing more grounding than making your own, being given a freedom, making a mistake. And immediately learning from it, don't you? I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's just the best way to learn to be given in the first instance that trust to ride through just you know just passion, just in like almost like that that lovely kind of not immaturity, but there's a real freedom to racing as a youngster. And slowly you just temper it and you learn with each race, with each training ride, don't you? About yourself, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, so just moving moving a little bit. Actually, what we're going to do now before we, I want to talk about that what happened over the last couple of years mate in a minute but i did warn you um at this at the start about this preston quiz so yeah. um what we'll do we'll uh, nile is obviously listening he'll come up with some sort of jingle in post which he'll drop in which hopefully will but i don't know maybe some folk music or something like that i'm not too sure but without further ado hugh um it's time for the preston quiz the preston quiz the preston quiz now it's time for the Preston Quiz. Now, I've, I've dug deep, deep, deep into the internet for these questions. Um, there's four of them. Take your time. No rush at all. Um, and and for, for ease as well, Hugh, they're multiple choice. All right? right. So um, you've got you've got a choices. So you can only, you know, 33.3 reoccurring of the, of the way there, basically. So first up, question. We could always, we could always cut these all out if we get them all wrong. Yeah, we could always. I mean, this is luckily this is not going out live. If it's a complete and utter disaster, we'll just bin it, uh, or friend pure entertainment will leave it in. We'll, we'll see, mate. Okay, uh, right. Okay, first up, um, Hugh. When did Preston officially become England's fiftieth city? Okay, I've got th- uh, three choices. So, when did Preston officially become England's fiftieth city? Was it nineteen ninety five? Was it two thousand and one? Or was it 2002? Um, it's either 2001 or 2002. I can remember it. I was, I was playing with uh, one of my neighbours at the time. It's called The Niche. 
Um, oh, right. And we're playing football, basketball in the back of his garden. Brilliant. And back then, we're like, I think he's, he, had a, he had a few older sisters and one of them had come back from, from town, as everyone used to call it. And we were going, oh, yeah, you've come back from city. <laughs> Brilliant. So that, that's my memory of it. Uh, I'm, how old would I have been? I, I would have been, yeah, seven or eight at the time. So, yeah, I'm going to have to toss a coin. I'm going to say 2002. Correct to Mundo, mate. Look at that. Oh, you've even got the, the little point. Well done, mate. And what a lovely little anecdote to throw in there as well, mate. So yeah. one out of one so far. You've got to a cracking start, mate. You're in the early move. You're rolling through and off nice and smoothly. You've got a three-minute gap on the bunch. Question number two. Okay. Right. What is the average yearly rainfall in days for Preston? So how many days rain, on average, for the last 15 years, does Preston have? Okay. Is it... 136 days a year, mm-hmm. 148 days a year, or 150 days a, days a year. And that's been measured from 1976 to 2001. That was the last time they actually measured it. So, um, yeah. Well, I, forgot, so, I got for the last one. I don't know. About, it rains a lot, so I'm going to go for the last one, the highest one. Correct. 150 days a year rain in Preston. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. I'd say more than that, to be honest. I can't believe there's a... <laughs> Those other, what's that, 210 days gone missing. I can't believe that 210 days that doesn't rain. Blimey. So you you are not surprised in the slightest. I think, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that days when the sun comes out. I don't know. A little bit of sun pokes out. Overcast, I don't know. Blimey, mate. Well, there you go. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a pretty wet place. In fact, that leads us nicely on, Hugh, to question number three, which is mm-hmm. this. What year... Did, was Preston named the wettest city in England? <laughs> okay, was it? So what year did Preston, uh, was Preston named the, wet, the wettest city in England? And obviously it was post when it was made a city. Was it 2014? Was it 2016? Or was it 2018? Which of those years did it get that prestigious award? Uh, I think the fact that I don't remember this means that I probably wasn't living there. So I'm going to say, what were the, the second two? 2016 and 18? So 2014, 2016, and 2018. I've got to say one latter two. I'm going to say, I don't know, go on what my parents whinge about and tell them it's raining again. I'm going to say, because uh, I think I came home in the summer of 2016. It was okay. The weather was good for a couple of weeks. So okay. I'm, going to, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, a whim or whatever you call it, and then say 2018. I'm afraid it was 2014. Sorry, oh, it was. Oh. Yeah, sorry. That was a pretty harsh buzzer there, wasn't it? But uh, still got two out of three. Uh, and then the final question, so it's a good effort. The uh, final question in the Preston quiz is this, and it's not related to how wet Preston is. You'll be pleased to know. <clears throat> how many grade one listed buildings does Preston have? Okay, so how many grade one listed buildings does Preston have? As you're probably aware, there are three grade, there, there are three Three levels, aren't they? Grade one, which is the highest grade. So all the really nice buildings, grade one. Then there's grade two. Then there's grade three. It's quite a lot of grade three, quite a lot of grade two, not so many grade ones. Are there five, four, or three? Uh, I'm going to say three. I think I know which three they are. Or certainly three of three or five Ooh. or three or four. I think there's, bus, there's the bus station. St. Walburg's Cathedral and the Harris Library. But, uh, they could be three of five or three, but they're the only three I really think of. Well, I tell you what, you're first off, you're right. Three is correct. 
Uh, and I was going to ask you for a bonus qu- for bonus points to name them. You've named St. Wahlberg's Church, which is correct, or Cathedral, because it's a city now. You've named the Harris Public Library. And the final one is the Preston Cenotaph. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, didn't know that. Didn't know that. So, th- so there you go. You've got pretty decent knowledge about your hometown, mate. Hey, can, I give you, I can give you some more, actually, if you want. Go on, St. Wahlberg's. Did he say it's a, I didn't know it was a cathedral now. Well, actually, it just says St. Walbert's Church here. That might be me ah, adding it on. So it's just it's, a church, no, sorry. I'm gonna, that's what I mean. This is where I was going to go with it. Because as far as I'm aware, it's the highest steeple or spire on a church in England, I think, or Britain. England or Britain, I can't remember. You have to look that up. No, no you, you, you say it and everyone's like, ah, no, that's rubbish. And you're like, no, 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 listen to what I said. I said church, not cathedral. So, do you know what? You're true. It, yeah. Here's the facts. St. Walberg's Church, designed by Joseph Hansom of Hansom uh, Cab fame. Um, have you ever got one of their cabs? Anyway, has a 94-metre spire, which is the tallest spire in England on a church that isn't a cathedral, which makes it the third tallest in the UK out of cathedrals and churches combined. It's lovely. I saw a, I saw a photo of it the other day on – I follow a page on – I think it's called Blog, Blog Preston on Instagram. And they, right. Someone, I think someone must have sent a drone up. I don't, I don't believe it's a – Look out right at the top. It was right at the top of the spire. It must have been a drone. And it has a little gold, um, I can't remember what it was, like a, a bird or a, a little, some kind of gold thing on top. Um, yeah, worth a, worth a look. It's a, it's a nice, there's some nice pictures of it. Yeah, I've just, I'm, uh, I've just got it up now. I think it's a little cross on top, a little gold cross. Um, but it is, um, it's actually been featured on 2012's World Monument Finds List. Um, it's it's a it's a lovely like if you ever get to Preston, um, you can get a cabs from the airport by Joseph Hansom of Hansom Cabs and, um, and go and look at the uh, St Walberg's Church. It is a thing of beauty, mate. So uh, there I you go. Fred, I think Fred Dibner might have done some bits there as well. I don't know. Oh, I remember Fred. Did he? Was he the bloke that blew uh, up? I, I, I made I made that up. I don't know if he'd done any work there at all, but <laughs> it's the kind of thing he's done, isn't it? He does bits yeah, on, on on churches and chimneys and. He's, I used to love Fred's documentaries. They're really, I don't know, typically gritty English and just oh, just nice, just northern and nice, mate. I mean, I, I love all those kind of home comforts. They're really important, aren't they? I think in, in, in all seriousness, it's lovely that you know a lot about where you live because I think it's just, I just think it's an important thing in life, mate. Right. Well, so you've done crackingly well on the quiz. Uh, there's one more quiz to cut, uh, come. That's guess that snack. We'll, do, we'll wrap, wrap up proceedings. We'll do that a little bit later, mate. But what I want to look at, if you don't mind, is again we might as well look at it it's it's obviously the highlight of your career so far mate um without a shadow of a doubt was was last well last year now last year's welter um obviously third overall won that magnificent stage mate which i know you've you've taught you must have talked to so many people about it and, and i hope mm-hmm. you don't get bored because it it obviously meant a lot to you and your team but for people watching mate fans and non-fans and just people watching what you did it was it was quite magnificent and wonderful quite emotional to watch mate without blowing smoke up your ass too much it was a, a magnificent achievement and but what i'd like to know is like heading into the vuelta last year off the back of a really solid tour which you'd ridden for the first time and you came out of obviously pretty well um what was your mindset like Hugh, uh, Hugh going into the vuelta what were you, what were you kind of feeling like um, I was feeling good the week before. I was feeling good before that. I, I was I flesh for alone and a couple of world championships. And to be perfectly honest, I was feeling a bit crap. Um, but I, I spent a couple of weeks here and uh, had a bit of a rest and got some training back in my legs. And 
uh, I came round and the week leading up to it, I felt great. So I knew, I don't know, my role wasn't exactly what I ended up doing. That wasn't my role before the world started. But mm. uh, that said, um, I knew, yeah, I knew the, the feelings were good. So, um, yeah, I wasn't sure what was possible by the end of the world. So, but I think with the way things, the way sort of fortune turned out within my team, uh, I sort of was given the opportunity uh, in the end, and uh, yeah, backed it up. And I was glad. Yeah, I was glad my my form hung on for for that long. So, at what point in the race then? Because I know you, you, you. Am I correct in saying that you and Mike Woods went into that race kind of on equal kind of standing to see who is, is that correct? Or have I read that wrong? Uh, um, it was more Martinez was more the sort of the card, um, right. and myself and Mike were sort of uh, we weren't going to be losing time, trying not to lose time in the first week. But if work needed to be done for for Danny in, in a crucial moment, we were going to be there for him at the end of the race, end of the stages. So uh, it was sort of like a half open card. Uh, yeah. See how see how the first week went, and then they're going to be settling to sort of a, a secondary role after that. Um, but it never for me. Well, luckily for me, it never came to that. There was certain bad fortune in the team for Mike and Danny on the first stage, and uh, that left me as the only sort of option. Um, but I, I knew on that, at the end of that first stage, I could, if I had barring bad luck and what have you, uh, I knew that I had like to compete. Um, but I think it took a few days for me to sort of back it up and back it up and back it up yeah. before the team. Before the team were like, okay. We've uh, we've got something on our hands here, um, but yeah, it was it was nice and everything worked out well in the end for me. And, and yeah, it's, it's easy to say, oh, it was a bit of bad luck for my team. But yeah, that, that's the case. But uh, I have a bad luck. I have a result taken out of my hands at the last minute or the start of races, stuff through illness or injury and uh, mechanical problems. So I think over the course of your career, everything balances out and. Uh, you don't regret anything, do you? You don't, you don't feel bad in those situations because you know that you've been the person in a crash or in a your chain snapped in a bad point in the race and you've lost a, a big result and stuff. So, uh, yeah. Uh, it, it's a really, a really, you know, you, you're right. It's, it's a really good way of putting it. I mean, and also the, the longer you're, you know, the, the longer you're riding for, you're still only 26, mate. There'll be, you know, hopefully a lot more highs. Just by the law of averages, there'll be a few lows, mate. But they all exactly. do even themselves out, and it, it it's such a it's such a it's such a brutal sport. But it's you know that there's such a random element. There's there's so much chance. I mean, you you can use the word luck if you want. I I, I prefer to use the word chance, and um, that that's kind of thrown at you. And you've just that's why you've got that's one of the reasons you have to be so mentally resilient and have a team around you that can support you, especially. The, the worst time for it to happen is when you're really going well and you have this kind of dose of, you know, bad chance, bad luck, whatever you want to call it. And you've got to kind of pick yourself up from that, haven't you? Um, and then quite often you're presented with an opportunity that was never really the plan. And it's about seizing those moments and, and thinking laterally, isn't it? And um, I think that they're quite often, because it's, I guess it's really, really rare when you can actually set out a set of objectives that you achieve 100% and you tick every box on route to it. Gen- generally, I mean, it does happen sometimes, but generally cycling just doesn't work like that, does it? No, but at the same time, you you, uh, you look at the teams that do well sort of consistently, and they have they have less bad luck or less uh, yeah bad fortune or whatever you want to call yeah. it. And mm. sort of historically, the teams that prepare the best, you know what I mean? They they 
they study the routes better, the uh, the mechanics build the bikes better, and the uh, the team search for the best parts for the bikes and stuff that breaks the least and the fastest bits and pieces. So you, are you, it's better looking at sort of the classics to see those examples. But the teams that win year in year out, your quick steps, your your sort of well, yeah, your quick steps, I suppose. Um, I think they don't really leave any stone unturned, tires <laughs> and bikes and stuff like that. And you think, why, why, do, why, why does, why does I don't know such a team have bad luck? And you think, well, I don't think they're, that in, they're not as invested in it as the teams that winning those kind of races. And in Grand Tour races, whether you've got 21 opportunities for things to go pear shaped, I think it comes to play again. Um, yeah, the, and that's how you do well in Grand Tours. You, you, sometimes it's not about what well, it is about who's strongest in the end, but it's about who's strongest are the people who don't have bad luck and uh, they're on top of the details and they study the course. They don't get caught out. They don't get caught out by a, mechan- a mechanic because a mechanic didn't glue a tire on properly or uh, fasten a chain up properly. And You know what I mean? It's easy to brush instances, in- things off as bad luck and, no, oh, it was just bad luck. But a lot of the time, it's, it's bad preparation that causes these mishaps. Yeah. In Grand Tours and no, Classics, it's never more uh, obvious to see than and those right it's only the past year or so I've really seen it up close and paid attention to anything. These same people that are doing well in Grand Tours, it's, it's no it's not a coincidence. They are the best physically, but at the same time they're, they're so anal about the details of the bike and the the, the equipment, the the nutrition stuff like that. They never have a, a bad stomach or they never have a yeah a cold because they've got people taking care of them and stuff like that and they never get you know, under the weather and stuff. It's I think it all adds up, you know what I mean? It's all a the process and I think in the future that's how things were in the in the world. For me, the team the team were they sort of went off the point there. I'm bringing it back now. Uh, the team were Sorry. the detail. Yeah, the, the race every stage. There's the directors were were excellent. We had every detail covered. One of our directors, Juan Mari, he'd, he'd driven. I think I don't know ninety percent of the stages. Cause a lot of it wasn't that far from where he's from, and he'd driven them in the car and done some of the bits on his bike and. Uh, if he hadn't been there, he knew someone. He knew someone local, and he'd ring them up, and he'd get a video call going, and he'd, he'd record the route and stuff, and get all the details, and he'd set up little hotels to, to TT before the TT instead of being on the bus. And, and when you think, oh wow, oh, yeah, he did a great time trial, for example, and you think, well, we prepared really well for it. It was, yeah. it was. Uh, I think that was probably one of the best days of my career in terms of execution and preparation. It was. I was sat there before it, thinking, there's nothing can go wrong. Every, look at look at what's I've had everything on a plate today I've been, a, I've been in a hotel all morning I've had great people in the team guiding me through the TT call I've had a really good recon I'm showered I'm changed I was away from the away from the sort of hustle bustle of the bus areas and you think nothing can go wrong today I think it's those kind of preparations that give you the confidence to give you the good results and it comes from the team you know what I mean it comes from the, the preparation and the execution of the details you know what I mean it's a bit boring people don't like it but it's, it's not when you think about what's at stake and and, and how much we kind of learn and, and how much we've learned over the over the years and and uh, it's very easy to kind of um, forget what you know when a rider crosses the line and congratulates his teammates the swan years the ds's aren't often there but you can see all the emotion pouring out it's because it is a, you know that there is a, a lot has gone into to the planning and preparation not just the rider's physical and mental state but the way that he was fed that day the way it was looked after the way that he was it was managed. I mean, and there are so many variables in this sport. That's what makes it, I think, so magnificent and so unpredictable. 
but you can eliminate quite a lot of the variables just by by using process and and process as you quite rightly said can be quite quite dull quite dry but it can help you get it right can't it you know and um and that's a wonderful illustration because you were fourth in that tt weren't you that put as the final tt of the world and you yeah. we know you can ride a good tt anyway but it was a really critical time and for you to say that you went into that saying all you needed to do was just ride your bike that must get that must give you so much extra going into it yeah i mean I, i'm not gonna i'm not gonna say it wasn't it was the best day of my career winning i think winning or being on the final podium madrid that's got to be up there but yeah the day of that tt i think that's got to be one of the when you feel like you've got someone's hands on your shoulder you know what i mean you can where you can feel someone people are behind you know pushing you yeah that was probably the, the best day of my career i mean on the road you only got your team your, your seven eight teammates with you and they're all working for you that's one thing but when all the mechanics are sort of uh sort of busying around changing detail changing chain rings last minute and uh sorting stuff out and changing sort of shifting configuration all those kind of things that people don't even know about yeah uh, um, and then when the result comes off you can sort of look everyone in the eye and think thank you you know what i mean it was it was yeah. a team effort i couldn't i couldn't have packed my packed my bag in the morning and, and done that myself you know what i mean you it's those days where it's a team effort from top to bottom and there was stuff going on away from the welter as well and i think back in one of the team's sort of performance directors uh training members training directors was sort of plotting a, a graph of sort of a power prediction and stuff like that and you know it's, it doesn't just stop at the the races it's everywhere you know it's the whole team from top to bottom on those on those days and on the other more traditional days at like the angler yeah it's the the sort of the bare bones team that are there on on the ground, but um, but yeah, in those TT days, a lot of a lot of preparation goes into the bikes months and years in advance to get the correct tires and find out the correct pressures on correct days and on certain days temperatures and humidities and uh, months and months of pestering the sponsors to get a certain handlebar and uh, a certain pedal or a certain skin suit made and stuff like that. People just see you in a pink skin suit on a blue bike on Cannondale and on the 3rd of November and they think, oh yeah, look at him, he's doing a good TT. But they don't understand that, not the work, not for me, no, I don't really see any of that. But back at the service course, Andreas Clear on the phone 24-7, getting constantly on at the sponsors, trying to improve everything. And yeah. at home in Mallorca, he's testing tyres, testing bikes every day, day in, day out. And, uh, yeah, I don't think anyone envies his job, but he loves it. And uh, on days like that, it comes out and you think, oh, yeah, we've got a great setup. We've got a great a great team behind us. So, yeah, that's my, that's that's really... my emotional speech done now. No, mate, no. It's, 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 down it's, now. Uh, Hugh, it's lovely to hear, you know, how much how much goes on behind the scenes because I think you're quite right, you know, and, and in my job as as a commentator now, you know, talking about this, you know, there's only so much we can kind of talk about. But for you, I mean... And I know a reasonable amount about what goes on, but for you to talk in so much depth about just what went on behind that kind of TT is is really, really just showcases how or highlights how much of a team sport this is nowadays. Everybody's got a role to play. And and also, I guess it's twofold, isn't it? You've got the, the practical support that that actually fundamentally gives you tangibly on the road. The X, Y, and Z are done, so you've got a ride. But also the psychological advantage knowing that you've got all these people behind you looking after you. And I suppose that's what you, you meant by that helping hand on your back, I, I guess. Exactly. Exactly. It's just, it's a helping hand. You know what I mean? You, it's like a leg up. You know what I mean? You, on your own, you, you, you're sort of scrambling a bit. But 
when you've got specific people that are hired for that role. And, uh, and don't get me wrong, our team isn't one of the, the big teams with one guy paid just to research tyres, one guy just paid to research bearings. We have sure. to do everything in-house. And like I say, Andreas, who does a lot of the bikes, he's, he's in charge of the bikes and material. He does it all himself. Um, but along with the mechanics, they, they advise him and the riders' feedback. But we don't have anyone, we don't outsource that job. We do it in Durham. We have the, the coaching side and stuff is all in, in-house. And uh, Yeah, we have to do it on a sort of a, our own scale. You know what I mean? I wouldn't say a small scale either. I wouldn't belittle it, but... We do it on our own scale. Some teams do it on a big scale. We do it on our own scale. And uh, I think for it's the... It work, it work, you know, it's, it's working for us. When I, I don't think anyone denied it. When I joined the team, I think 2017, it was it was a polar opposite of where it is now in terms of yeah. uh, the attention. So I think they want, the team wanted to. No one was in denial that uh, we needed to do those kind of things. But I think budgetary reasons and uh, the way the team was, I think the results that we were getting, I think we couldn't... Maybe the team couldn't justify to... Invest in certain things, you have to make cuts in certain areas and uh, those kind of developments. And like I say, the detail side of things sort of maybe got neglected. But uh, when EF came on board and gave the, gave the team a big injection financially and a, a boost, a sort of a, a change of uh, a change of blood as it is, or a change of oil kind of thing, um, and started setting about adjusting things in the team, that was when it really started. 2018, 2019 was when. Uh, you could really feel the difference, feel the benefits of those investments. I mean, it's you know, it sounds fascinating. I mean, what a, my kind of last question on on, on the Vuelta, um, and I know that I, I've listened to a couple of podcasts that you've chatted to, and you, you know your descriptions of uh, riding up the Angrily were amazing. But just for the for the listeners of this pod who might not have heard them, if you could just kind of describe um as best you can just the last couple of kilometers as of the of the of that stage because you know i was watching at home uh sat there watching it seeing you grind you up that climb everybody's on the maximum riding at kind of kind of walking pace up up arguably the hardest climb in, in world cycling and you slowly inched your way away <laughs> from roglic and co i mean what was just describe it as best you can. Once you realised that you you were clearly the strongest, and you started to nudge clear, what's going through your head? What's going through your legs? What's it What's it feeling like? Um, I don't know. Not really much, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> you, you find no, but you, without sounding arrogant, you find you find some kind of I don't know. I don't think serenity is the right word, but you you find this calmness in those situations, mm. especially me as a climber. You know, I mean, I spend all day flapping around sort of desperately trying to get over the line and get to the climb, you know what I mean? Not get caught in a crosswind or on a descent or in a the fight for the bottom of the climb, getting to the front of the bunch. For me, those are the those are the bits where my mind's my mind's going wild. Uh but for me when I get to the climb, you know what I mean, you take your glasses off or you you have your last gel and for me that's when I find find it most enjoyable and peaceful. Yeah. Um but on a climb like that, yeah, it's a long one and you gotta be you gotta be ready for it being a long one and a hard one. Um uh, but yeah, a few a few kilometers to go. Uh, the, the group was the group was tying some some pretty good riders have gone out the back, and so then I was already sort of thinking, okay, well I've got I'm top seven on the stage, you know, I'm gonna I'm probably gonna maintain my fourth overall, whatever it was at the time. Uh, I'm probably gonna maintain that. So sort of wasn't jobs are good, and but it was sort of like, oh, well, I had a good day. Today's not a bad day at least. Yeah. Um, and then I think Enrique Mass was the first to sort of. Uh, have a bit of a, a prod and 
I followed him a bit and couldn't really get him back a bit. And then I sort of I got caught from behind by I don't know Carapaz and Roglic maybe, and then then they kind of went again. And I got I sort of waited a bit. I thought just hang about, don't. This is still a long way to go at this point. And, well, there's a couple of kilometers, but that that sort of great. It was still a long way to go. And then after that, I kind of got back and then got back to Carapaz and Enrique Mas, and I thought I thought. I saw it. I've got nothing. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm going to go. If, yeah. If I feel in my mind, I can go. I can go. You've been doing it long enough. Where you get to a point, you think, I know, I can. I'm not going to blow up. I'm, I've had a few gels in the past half an hour. I'm not. <laughs> I've had my. Yeah. I mean, you've had your drinks yeah. and all your food and stuff. Yeah. I'm not. You know when you're going to blow up. And I thought there's there's so little of the race to go. I'm not going to. Nothing drastic. Nothing major is going to happen. You know. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm not going to fully sort of get the knock and that but uh, so I thought I'm going to go just going to go so I went got a bit of a gap and then didn't really look round and uh, then yeah I looked round a kilometre to go and she crested the steepest bit and, and then it was downhill from there and uh, that was that yeah that was that was that and then the last kilometre you know I mean you just enjoy it you look over your shoulder and think okay this is this is what we this is what we do it for you got to enjoy it you got to soak it soak it up and uh Enjoy days like today when it's minus seven outside and you think, oh, I could wish I was indoors. You, that's why you do it. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, so I enjoyed that last couple of minutes. I mean, yeah, because you had a nice little gap going over the top, and uh, mercifully on that climb there is a bit of a drop off to the line before that last little kick up. So I'd imagine, mate. I mean, you know, you're quite an impassive guy sometimes in terms of trying to read you, but. You know, there was a real moment of catharsis when you crossed the line. I mean, because that was obviously your first Grand Tour stage win. Um, and it was, yeah, it must have been, without stating the obvious, you know, uh, something that you could actually savour for the last few hundred metres and realise what you'd achieved. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was the last minute or so down to the line. It was, uh, yeah, if it had been uphill all the way and you sort of, there were people coming back on you and you were looking over your shoulder, the different story were there when, I knew I'd have got. I don't know. You you could have kept going and maybe saved a second or so. But I think you know, you've got to just. Those are the moments in twenty years, thirty years, or whatever. You look back on and think, oh, I remember that exactly how it was. Not, oh yeah, I can't remember that. Oh yeah, I've forgotten about that. Whatever. But you got to enjoy them. The once in a lifetime opportunity to win on those kind of climbs and a Grand Tour. Fantastic. I mean, um, just. We're getting towards an hour now, mate, but I've still got quite a few things I want to ask you. So I'm going to... Oh, you go. I've, still got, I've still got plenty of battery on my laptop. You go good, as long as you want. Good, good stuff, mate. No, um, I, I, we, sh- we should have done this as a two-parter, mate, because you, you know, you, you've opened up really, really... Lo- it's been just a, lo- a lovely... It's just a pleasure talking to you. It's so interesting what you have to say. But um, I want to kind of rattle off a couple of questions. Not all of them about cycling, mate, although a couple of them are. Um, I'm just wondering... I know you're a big snooker fan and a big boxing fan as well. I was actually trawling through your Instagram profile earlier on, looking at who you follow. You follow a lot of boxers what and snooker players. What fascinates you about both those sports? Um, I don't know. Boxing is only really this sport I've sort of got into the past two years. Um, the past three or four years, I've started following it. and I don't know. The, the characters in it, I don't know. you I think in cycling, because it's not really, you won't class it, it's not a major sport like boxing or football or uh, sort of motorsport or anything, but professional mm. enough that everyone has to behave themselves, you know what I mean? So we're not, we're sort of a halfway house, we're professionals that, ever, like I say, everyone has to behave themselves, but we're not so big that you can have that 
sort of brash arrogance. Do you know what I mean? It's it's hard it's hard to describe. So we sort of people take us seriously, but we've got to sort of know our place. But some of the yeah. boxes online, they put stuff online. You think? I we said it to some of the right. I got Stevie Williams is into his boxing and all those kind of sports as well. And we send some of the things, and you think, we say, how long, how long would you last in your team if you posted that? And he said, oh, two minutes. And I'd be like, oh yeah, I, rec- I reckon I get, I reckon I get to lunchtime if I posted that, and then I'd be out. Uh, there's a few boxes. Uh, to, there's a couple of British. What, Derek Chisora, if you've heard of him, he's been a world title challenger it. over the. Derek Chisora is pretty. Uh, he's pretty famous. He's. I won't. He's by no means a journeyman, but he's not. He's not Anthony Joshua, Tyson Fury. He's a heavyweight. He's a big heavyweight from London. Uh, and he, some of the stuff he puts online, you, you sort of just cringe and thinking, bloody hell. And uh, Billy Joe Saunders as well, he's he's a, a travelling boxer, so from the travelling community like Tyson Fury. And uh, again, some of the things that he puts online, you think, we just couldn't get away with that on our sport. They're both accomplished sort of world title. I think what, uh, Billy Joe Saunders is a world world champion. In one of the divi- one of the belts, um, but yeah, we won't get away with that stuff. And I might that in those kind of sports, you think they just don't care. You know what I mean? They're just so big and so powerful in those sports that they're untouchable. We I do know what you mean. So, some of the stuff I'm not yeah. excusing. I'm not excusing them saying they can do what they want. They can be rude and you know what I mean. But you go to admire it at the same time. They don't care. They've got no one to answer to. You know what I mean? If I if I put yeah. something online now or something a bit risky, something a bit controversial, within 20 minutes I'd have. Jonathan Vaught on the phone, uh, the owners of the team, the owners of EF, and I'd, I'd, I'd be yeah. out the door unless I unless I backtrack seriously, and I'd be out the door in, in thirty seconds. Uh, <laughs> and snooker, yeah, snooker, something, yeah, I, I've always liked it. Uh, I used to watch it with my dad years ago uh, when I was younger. He used to always have it on, and the big tour, UK Championship, World Championships, Masters, those kind of things. Uh, um, and yeah, it's always a sport that I've really. I've never played. That's the thing. I've never. You've never played. I've never played. Never played snooker. Oh, I played. Mate. I played a bit of pool, but I've. Uh, yeah. I'm. I'm rubbish. I'm, I'm. I've got the worst hand-eye coordination you've ever seen. Uh, but it, mate, seriously, I used to. I mean, obviously, as a child of the seventies and the eighties, I grew up on snooker because back when there's only three or four TV channels. I mean, we're looking at fifteen, sixteen million people watching the Dennis Taylor. World Championship final back in like eighty six, whenever it was eighty five. It was eighty five. There you go, yeah. blimey. Um, and uh, I used 86. to be down the local. Eighty six was Joe Johnson that won the World Championship. Of course, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've, I've, Steve I've Davis both times. There you go. So you, you you're not just a, a fan. You're a bit of an aficionado. An aficionado. I don't know. I, I like it. I like. I watch all the when I watch. It's on Eurosport, and uh, you get me. If you get me some free tickets to. Uh, one of the big tournaments. I see, I see what I can do. I do know the produ- I do know the producer. Oh, I'm, jo- I'm um, joking. I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that. I'd rather pay. I'd rather pay than get free ones and have to publicise that I've groveled for them. Um, no, no, no. Uh, but on Eurosport, they do. It's, it's great on BBC. They don't really do it. They have all sort of the old, the old school sort of Steve Davis, Stephen Hendry, and uh, Claire Boy. Is it Claire Baldwin or? Balding, uh, no, yeah. she doesn't anymore. She used to do it. Jill Douglas, it does it, isn't it? The Scottish lady. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah, she does it, and I don't know. Sometimes the bits in between the the matches and the frames, the intervals, they're not really like that. But in Eurosport, they've got a few sort of rogues, haven't they? They've got uh, what's he called, Andy Goldstein, that does the presenter with Jimmy White, always on there, and uh, Jimmy, a few yeah. of the others. 
Uh, Ronnie O'Sullivan and Jimmy. Yeah, Ron, I think yeah. I think Ronnie. I think that's the only channel that Ronnie sort of gets on with, isn't it? And uh, has a bit of fun with. Yeah, he's he's a he's, he's a mate of, um, of of one of my mates, Rob, who's one of the producers, um, and they do look after him. But um, yeah, Ronnie's a character. Jimmy White is a character as well. But um, yeah, because Jimmy's a pundit as well as playing still, isn't he? You know, so well, that, uh, that's, for me, that's the best thing about it. You know, in, in between the frames and stuff, they go to the practice tail with Jimmy White and Andy, Andy, and I think Neil Folds turns up as well, and they do those re- shots recreated and stuff. And uh, that's it. yeah, yeah, yeah. And you you learn a lot about snooker, the types of shots and the. the side and all that sort of check side all those kind of jargon and and then, then they show the have uh, occasionally they put on these like Ronnie O'Sullivan show or something where he goes back in time and does all these goes and interviews like I say Joe Johnson or Dennis Taylor and people like that and uh, Barry Hearn goes back and uh, back through the archives and replays all this old footage of him back in the day and it looks a great time to be uh, to be a well to be a sport for the snooker but then I think uh it was really a proper household sport, wasn't it? Proper. I oh, massively. House. I used to, yeah. I, I used to play quite a lot. Dan, when as I said my dad was a policeman, and in the police club where he used to live near Watford, there was a, a big um, sports complex, and they used to have a full size snooker tables, like six or seven, eight full size snooker tables in a proper snooker hall. And I used to go out there, do a bit of mine sweeping first, dr- drink all the half half leftover pints of beer. Oh, yeah when I was about 12, 13, and then go and play snooker all day. Uh, and then six a side out in, in the football nets as well. But, um, so, well I want to I want to start it. I want to, I'd love I sort of my sort of life, life ambition, I think, to get a table in my house. It's it's really, it's got a full-size full snooker table. It's a, great. It's a big it's thing. I think the house is probably going to be more impressive than the table, isn't it? I, that. <laughs> well, I don't know where I'm going to be, I'm going to be able to afford a house this big. Um, but yeah, that, that I'd love to have a table in my house, even just to look at. I think uh, they're beautiful yeah. things. The big I want to play yeah. with the COVID. I think if it wasn't for COVID, I'd have, there's a. I think Stephen Henry's got a club in Preston, and there's a couple of other clubs knocking around. Right. I was I was looking into it, but obviously with COVID, it was a no go. But next year or this year, if, at the end of the year, if I'm back in the UK, I'll uh, I'll give you a belly. You can teach me the teach me the teach me how to. I can teach you the basics, mate. Bit, yeah. No, I saw that. Yeah, I saw it. Is it? But he's not getting too serious. You, you take the fun out of it, then you've got to be able to yeah. knock a few in on some nice big pockets and get on with it's it. It's a good laugh. It, it, I tell you, it's, it's a real proper social occasion. I used to play with my ex-father-in-law as well. We used to go down to Riley's snooker, snooker Club and, until it got shut down in crew for all the drugs deals that went down. But before then, um, it was great. Um, used to play me, my father-in-law. Used to really love it. And that was when I was cycling. I was racing. I was a pro. But I used to, just in the winter, I used to go and play a couple of frames, three bit or cross, four frames of, of an evening. Frustrated, yeah. A few beers. Uh, get the old uh, snooky queue out, mate. But uh, yeah, that, that's a date, mate, definitely. And now, Riley's a Lancashire company. Rotten store. Is it? Ah, right. Yeah. Well, the one in crew sadly got shut down. I mean, when I was in the job, I actually I used to play snooker there. And then I realised that I better not hang out there anymore because there was that many fights and that much stuff going off. I had to sort of quit bloody playing there. And then it got raided and then shut down. So well, there you go, mate. Um, so we, won't, we won't go to that one. Yeah. <laughs> to that one. Right, I'm going to ask you a couple of funny little questions, and then we're going to wrap things up by doing the qu- the, the snack quiz. So, um, Hugh, what teammate would you choose to room with if you had to for a whole year? Say JV said, look, we're not mixed up roommates. It's the same squad for all these races. Um, you can pick one guy, and he's going to be your roomie all year. Who would it be? Oof, I don't know. Uh, this year, sort of... Uh... Uh, don't know. Removed all the roommates from our memory because we've been on our own of all course, year. Of course, yeah. <laughs> um, 
we are, no one wants to go back to roommates anymore now. <laughs> uh, I like I, 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 I like having a roommate. I enjoy it. It's a good, good bit of banter and it's good to switch off at times. But um, I don't know, to be honest. I get on well with everyone. I mean, someone who doesn't snore or... I don't know. I think I can snore occasionally, so maybe I'm, I shouldn't really say it or anything. But, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, who who I sort of enjoyed rooming with? Um, I mean, you get on. I understand you get on with TJ quite a lot. There's a fair bit of banter between you and him, isn't there? Yeah, but the, yeah, I, there is. Yeah, but I think sometimes you can cross lines of being roommates with people with a big age gap. Putting younger right. riders, well, I don't, know, I don't want to offend him, he's not that much older than me, but uh, when you put a younger rider with a more veteran rider, you can start to get a bit, I don't know, I don't, I don't know, usually they put younger riders with younger riders or older yeah. riders with older riders and or mix this, or combine the two nations or something or whatever, but uh, oh, right. okay. I, don't, I don't, it depends on the team, some teams have different sort of, different ways of doing it. Um, yeah. Some teams put opposites in rooms to try and um, I don't know, cause a fight or something. I, I don't know. Sometimes they, they put they put sort of opposite types of people and they mix the team up so clicks and stuff don't fall. Um, I used to I used to get on well with uh, with Danny Martinez. He was okay. We, we used to room together when he was in his first year, first couple of years. We roomed at races and yeah, we'd have a good laugh and uh, we're on a similar sort. It's good to find. I, I'm not a massive sleeper, so I go to bed quite early, but. I wake up early as well, and he was he was sort of similar. He'd be ten and ten eleven o'clock lights out, and uh, seven o'clock ish. There's nothing worse than waking up at sort of even a normalish like a latest time, eightish or something, and right. you've got to creep around your room for two hours because <laughs> someone's sat next to you sleeping. There's nothing yeah. worse than that. It's nice to be on the same sort of sleeping pattern as someone else, and Fair you enough, you wake up at eightish, and then you roll over, and they're sort of waking up as well, and you sort of ESI. I'm going to open the curtains now, and um, but yeah, I'd say, I'd say him. Yeah, we got on, we got on well in the room, okay. and uh, we had a bit of fun as well. We didn't really talk about cycling or the racing or anything. We always had a bit of a laugh and a bit of mischief now and again and stuff. And uh, on the training camps and things, it was yeah, it was yeah, yeah, probably say him. Good stuff. Okay, next one up. Um, you get a call from JV from Jonathan Waters saying that you they've had a bit of a problem uh, with the team, and you can only be paid for this season for 2021 in biscuits so a big cash flow issue you can only be paid in biscuits but you can choose the biscuit that you get paid in what's what what biscuit would you choose you it's funny you should say that i've had a very similar conversation a few, a few weeks ago <laughs> <laughs> no 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 all joking aside no uh i was gonna say i thought i didn't realize it, you were in the you're on the phone call that one uh, no uh Biscuits. I well, you know Daniel Free, I think he ITV. Uh, he, yeah. he asked me a biscuit question in the welter actually. Oh right, he okay. He asked me my favourite biscuit, and I said I said custard cream. He put me on the spot and sort of backed me into a corner. And I said custard. I said custard cream. Oh yeah. Uh, I do like a custard cream, and I'm not going to back down from that. Um, but if I had more than five seconds to think of something, I'd maybe say something a bit more interesting. Um, yeah. well, it's a classic though, mate, isn't it? And also, it's it's more than just a biscuit. It's two biscuits with some cream in the middle. So there's a lot more going on, isn't there? But I tell you, there's when I was at school, where I lived in Preston, there's a place about, I don't know, five or ten miles away called Kirkham. Yeah, um, And in Kirkham, there's the Foxes, it used to be the Foxes Biscuit Factory, or one of the factories, I don't know at least. Wow. Um, and there's a girl in one of my, I think she was in the history class, I can't remember her name. 
uh, or somewhere. I don't know what class she was in. I think a dad, a dad worked there or had something to do with it. Every yeah. now and again, you get these like sort of crumbs, like the broken, the broken bits. And bring some, bring some, bring some crumbs into school. We all, we all like, she like tip them out in people's hands. We all like, like these like, but the ones that I like, the foxes ones that I like the most, um, were the it was a ginger nut cream. Oh, I know the one you mean. Yeah, which is like a little custard cream filling, but two ginger nuts either side. Oh, that's an amazing biscuit. I, I know exactly yeah. the one. It's quite an interesting taste because you've got the ginger in it and it, it mixes kind of weirdly with the cream, but somehow it, it pulls together right, for a proper so. taste sensation, doesn't it? Uh, I'd say, yeah, I'd say if I had to get pe- but I don't know if, if you, to endure something for a full year, I think you go over something quite plain, haven't you? I think so. I'm going back to the custard cream there, I think. All right, custard I think, cream. Um, right. After that big segment about yeah. ginger nuts, <laughs> ginger creams. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I, ginger cream is a good packet by packet, aren't they? But if you have yeah. to li- live with them for a year, it's a lot, isn't it? That's a lot of ginger, I mean, isn't it? Yeah, I think I think the custard cream is just a notch down in kind of like spice and um, in flavour. And I think it's a safer bet, mate. But it's your call. But I think it's probably a safer bet. Yeah. yeah I'm gonna custard. What about those pink? Pink wafers, those pink panther wafers. <laughs> pink, yeah. I mean, they're just a bit. I mean, they're all right, but again, yeah. anything, everything in moderation. But I, I don't think I could, I could eat. Uh, you get sick of a mess as well, wouldn't you? Yeah. You're going through so many of them in a year. You, the last few in the packet, or you get a bit messy, so you get sick of that. Yeah. I think sweeping no, up. I, I, I don't think it'd be a good. I think the custard cream is a is a good choice. If I were to be your biscuit, give you biscuit based legal advice, mate, and I was your agent doing sorting out the contract, let, let's let's go for custard creams. Who makes custard? Who's the original custard cream maker? Who make, what's the brand? Oh, bloody, you put me on. The spot, always, there's Crawford used to make a lot. Didn't they? Oh, I think it might. Is it Crawford? Like Jacobs make the cream crack. I think it is Crawford's. They, the, when you saw the cafe, you see one of those individual ones in the counter, don't you? When they've run out of cakes, you have one of those, have yeah. a packet of those. <laughs> and the, I always like it. You know, when you go to, when you're doing like the Tour of Britain or something, and you go to your hotel room, the first thing I go to is the tea and coffee making facilities to see if you've got a free biscuit. <laughs> yeah, you can, oh, yeah. least, I used to love those days. But if you've got a custard cream, you get three in a pack. It's brilliant, wasn't it? Yeah, pretty good. Or bourbons. Bourbons, bourbons right. yeah. They're nice. They are nice, mate. Well, that leads us, that biscuit-based chat leads us onto the final segment. This is going to be a bumper edition, but thankfully, not thankfully we're in lockdown, but I think people are going to enjoy this, mate. It's been a wonderful chat, but we are going to wrap things up with, uh, and I hope Niall has is, is got ready here with the um, with the kind of intro, with the jingle. Um, we, it's Cecile Utrop Ludwig who actually sings this for us. So uh, take it away. Guess that snake, guess that snake, oh yeah, guess that Proper, proper jingle. Who's that? Pretty Who's cool, that? Cecilia Utrop Ludwig from uh, FDJ Futuroscope. Oh, well, you said that. It sounded like a member of Avarice and thing. I thought you put yeah, <laughs> some strings here. <laughs> I'm not well up on. Although I don't, I'm not well up on members of Avarice. I don't know. They're Swedish, aren't they? Yeah, can you, mem- can you imagine? No, no, I know she is. I'm, I'm, only, I'm only having a joke. I know she is. I know. But, but can you imagine if, if we if the, the podcast got that successful, we could employ members of ABBA to do the flipping jingles? That'd be amazing. Anyway. Could resurrect, resurrect people. Oh, are are, are ABBA still, be... still kicking around or are a few of them gone now? I don't know. They're all alive. Uh, oh, they but they don't do a lot. They don't do a lot of press, but I do believe they made. Uh, they've made some new records. Uh, I think they're, they're looking at releasing an EP in the next year or so. 
Um, so I, I think they primarily make musicals and stuff at the moment. But the, the, yeah, so they're all alive, thank goodness. They're one of my favourite bands. Uh, I got a book for Christmas. Um, it's called ABBA, uh, the meaning behind every song. So it's every single ABBA song ever uh, with the, an, an explanation and the story behind each song. Does that ruin it for you now, though? Is that, that ruined all the well, songs? Well, I, I'm, only, I'm only like flicking through it. I'm not getting too into it um, because it's I do like the, the mystique. Yeah, it's a coffee tea, and it looks really nice as well. Right, guess that snack is based. This is the premise, Hugh. So I've got four potato, no, four corn and potato based snacks here, right. and and a, and a variety of peanut as well. Um, I'm going to tell you what they are, and then in no particular order, I'm going to crunch one into the microphone, and based on the crunch, mm-hmm. you need to try and guess what it is. Okay. Right. So I'll tell you what snacks we've got. We've got, and a classic, you'll know this from your school days, mate, or just from just from regular life, um, Walker's Square Crisps, salt and vinegar flavour. Classic. Yep, an absolute classic. Are they, are they, got you got, have you got Walker's own, or have you got the... You got the the fake ones, the same. No, the, these, are, the these aren't fake. Um, we've managed to get a big injection of cash from Sigma Sports, and we've gone for a. Uh, we got a six pack from uh, Poundland, mate. So we're we're cooking on gas. These are the real McCoy. Well, they're not McCoys. They're Walker's Square that's Crisps. Another, that's another good crisp. <laughs> Indeed. So we've got Walker's Square Crisp, and we've got the classic, original flavored Pringle as well. Yeah, uh, the oh. red ones. The red ones, mate. Yeah, uh. got the red ones. Um, we've also got. These Walker's Sensations Thai sweet chili flavour. It's a basically a normal crisp, but you know sensations, don't you? Yeah. They're, they're, they've become a classic now. In the early 2000s, oh, God, they, yeah. were, they were a bit avant-garde, weren't they? But now they're a bit, now they're, a, they're, they're retro now. I think in the early days when they first came out, you were a bit posh if you had these, weren't you? And people yeah. were thought, God, what, you know, what's all that about? You know? Uh, doing, but now, doing, or someone's doing all right. Yeah. But they all exactly. all had Yeah. <laughs> How much? How much? And what contracts he's on? Eating Walker Sensations at the service station on the way to a Premier Calendar. Blimey! Yeah. And then, and then finally, these are kind of. I know it's not quite seasonal now. We're out of the we're out of the festive season, but these are Tesco's crispy roasted roasted peanuts, but they're pigs in blanket flavour. So basically, it's a peanut with a coating on it that tastes like bacon. All right. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not into that kind of thing. You, they rarely tasted what they're supposed to. They always had the Christmas dinner flavored ones, and you have them, and you think it tastes like a chicken and stuffing crisp or a uh, I don't know. They do, a, yeah. A they smoky, smoky bacon. Why do they just call it smoky bacon flavored peanuts instead of building yeah. you up pigs in blanket? Oh, pigs in blanket! Bloody hell, this is going to be good. It tastes like a <laughs> smoky bacon crisp or a peanut. They should have yeah, called they, it what it actually was. I know. Maybe you should sort of um, go on the Tesco. But these are Sainsbury's own. These are Tesco's own. Tesco's oh, own crispy-coated peanuts. Yeah, Tesco's own. I mean, we did use them for the previous podcast, but because of, again, budgets, uh, I've resealed the bag with one of those little clips that you use on a, on a, for, for bread. KP are anyway. expensive as well, aren't they? They are again, overpriced. Yeah, and, and there's no point reaching too high, mate. I mean, when I, I know I'm quite grounded when it comes to my snacks. A few classics in there, but then you've got to balance things up by having a, a couple of lower-priced options as well. Yeah. Right. So... We've got Pringles. We've got Walker Sensations Thai Sweet Chili. We've got uh, Walker Square Crisp Salt and Vinegar, and we've got the Nuts Pigs in Blanket flavored, uh, made by Tesco's. You've got to guess them. Um, the first one is coming up now. So you ready? Yep. Okay. First one coming up. I'm going to move the thing a little bit close to the microphone. So first one coming in now. What am I crunching? That's a square. 
It's not a square, mate. Oh. No. <clears throat> Afraid not, mate. Afraid not. But um, it was, I say it was a good guess. It was just an incorrect guess at the end of the day. Um, next up, what what is this? Listen closely, mate. Is that a square? No, it wasn't a square, mate. <laughs> no. One of the, it got a 50-50 chance the next one would be a square. It's either the okay, pe- peanut or the square next time, isn't it? So. Okay, mate, yeah. So... Um, I'll give you a clue. You've been pretty warm on the last two you've guessed. What is this coming in? Just come on, you. I don't know. You didn't say those peanuts are crispy, though, didn't you? So they could be a peanut. I don't know. It's going to be a square. Finally, a square. That's a, it's a square, Chris, mate. Well done. These have all sounded the same, to be fair. I think you have to re. You should have put Monster Munch in or something. Monster Munch think, would have been a different sound. I or, think, uh, yeah, I mean, normally I use popcorn and we use like uh, pretzels when I did, when I, have a, when I had Sep Kuss on the other day, we had popcorn and pretzels. When you have foreign people of, on. Yeah, foreign people. <laughs> Ameri- I had to Americanize it, but uh, poor old Sep. He's a great climber, but not very good at guess that snack. Um, finally, Hugh, what is this little puppy just popping in now? Well, it's a, Peanut. That was a peanut, mate. Well done. 50-50. Two out of four. So the crowd, the crowd have gone wild. Um, two out of four. So 50%. You pulled it back. You had a, a dodgy start. Um, if, if that had been a time trial, you probably would have just fallen off the start ramp, mate. But then you picked up your bike, you got going, and you finished well within the time limit. So well done. Thank you. Good stuff. Right. Let's put those to one side. And um, well, basically, Hugh, thanks very much, mate. That was... A lot of fun. Um, I think we could have chatted for a lot longer. Um, really, really appreciate your time. And um, hopefully we can get, get back to racing sooner rather than later, mate. I mean, um, I guess you're pretty excited about what's to come this year? I'm looking forward to the snooker now. <laughs> Stop the racing. I'm, I'm looking forward to next, next November now. Yeah, actually, yeah, the 2021-2022 off-season. We'll yeah. have to meet up because, obviously, hopefully, this awful situation will be well behind us and we can go for a pint and play some snooker. Where, are you, where are you based? Well, I'm based in uh, West London, yeah. but uh, I do travel around. And I'm looking at possibly moving back up north in about a year or so, but uh, who knows? But, find, uh, try and find a snooker club somewhere in the middle, Midlands way or something. Definitely, we, we could do. I'm Wal- sure they've got... Walsall uh, Snooker Hall. Yeah, somewhere pretty... Uh, maybe somewhere pretty choice, somewhere pretty edgy. I'd be nice, wouldn't it? No, maybe, I'm not a good. I'm not a good fighter. So, oh, you're so a police, police, police officer. You'll be okay. Yeah, but I, 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 I only ever had about four fights. Um, I kind of, I wasn't a big. I was more of a communicator than I didn't really like rolling around. Well, four more than like, me. Four more than me. So. <laughs> you'll be, we'll be all right. I think. <laughs> yeah, I don't think me and you would do too well in a fight, but I reckon we could leg it in the other direction pretty well, mate. Yeah, I, think you, I think you could. <laughs> I think I'm well, worse than running than I snooker. Yeah, I've, I, I used to be a, a reasonable a reasonable runner, but um, um, not anymore. Not after I sent to bust my knee. But but I reckon no. Let's let's do another podcast in a year. Um, but maybe at a, at a snooker hall or a video, that'd be good, wouldn't it? Documentary. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I reckon that'd be good, mate. But uh, Hugh, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate. You've been absolute nice diamond. I'm sure Thank people you. will really really enjoy this. And uh, it just takes me. All I need to do, mate, is just wish you 
All the very best for 2021. I've no doubt we will bump into each other on the road um, as we normally do, mate. But um, for now, mate, um, God bless and take care of yourself, buddy. Thank you. You too. Hugh and I could have chatted for hours. What a sharp, witty and lovely guy. And I really do hope he and his EF Education Nepo team continue to enjoy success in 2021. And we'll have to get down to a snook hall for a follow-up as soon as we can. Actually, he's just sent me a WhatsApp saying he's looking at snooker cues online. Thanks as ever to Perry App Gwyneth for the podcast theme tune. And thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to like, subscribe and rate the pod. And want to recommend it to your cycling buddies. Or to meteorologists calculating the wetness of your area. And finally, a huge thanks to Hugh for joining us today and making me laugh so much. Thanks very much all. Goodbye. See you soon.